On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode, we're going to talk about some mysterious disappearances. According to the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, roughly 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time. That's a staggering number, 90,000. That's the population of a mid-sized city in, say, Indiana, where I live. In some missing persons cases, there's little to no evidence. That means the investigation is almost dead before it starts. It also leaves a lot of room for people to come up with their own theories. Some of them are really out there. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. about you, but I find unsolved missing person cases both fascinating and horrifying. Fascinating because we all have imaginations, some of us more than others, but we could spend hours speculating on what might have happened to the person. Who took them? Where did they take them? Is there any chance they're still alive? I think as finite human beings, the idea that someone can just vanish is hard for us to wrap our minds around. The horrifying part is if that person is never found, a family is left to forever wonder what became of their loved one. No closure, no end to the stress, and grief those people must feel because their loved one is still out there, dead or alive. Let's start out this episode with Jennifer Kiss. Jennifer up and disappeared from her own home on January 23, 2006. The day before, 24-year-old Jennifer had come home from work talked with her family on the phone, and then called her boyfriend, Robert Allen, around 10 p.m. It's assumed then she went to bed. The following day, Jennifer didn't answer any texts or phone calls. Her co-workers were confused when she didn't come to work. By 11 a.m. that day, her parents were driving to Orlando from Tampa, where they lived, to see if Jennifer was home. Her car was gone, and nothing else seemed strange or abnormal, out of place. Footage obtained from the apartment complex showed an unidentified person dropping Jennifer's car off at around noon on the day that her family realized she was missing. Unfortunately, the footage wasn't great and the apartment complex gate blocked a lot of the image. Other than that footage of the car and the mysterious person, they had nothing. At one point, they get a latent print off the car, but it is too insignificant to be helpful. There were also no missing items from the car, so they're pretty sure that robbery was not the motive. Investigators do the usual thing. They question everyone in her orbit, friends, boyfriends, even an ex-boyfriend. One older gentleman at Jennifer's place of employment had in the past shown some interest in Jennifer. He was also cleared. Jennifer's credit cards did not show any use, and her cell phone had been turned off and gave them nothing to point them in any direction. It's now been 15 years, and they are no closer to finding out what happened to Jennifer than they were when it happened. Our next missing person is Maura Murray. On the evening of February 9, 2004, little after 7 p.m., 
the Grafton County Sheriff's Department in New Hampshire gets a call about a car accident. They actually get more than one, but the first one is telling them that there is a black Saturn wedged against a snowbank in Woodsville, New Hampshire. The second call is from a school bus driver saying that there was a young woman still in the car. She didn't look like she had any visible injuries, but she felt cold to him. This guy's name is Butch Atwood. Butch tells police that the girl pretty much begged him not to call police. Initially, he did as she asked, but when Butch got home, he decided to call the police. The police go to the scene, but they don't find any young woman there. They think it's probably her. Um, she is a 21-year-old University of Massachusetts student who had been recently reported missing. A check of the car confirmed it was hers. Police make the assumption that she was probably drunk and had gotten into an accident. Afraid of getting a DUI or something like that, she must have gone off into the nearby woods in order to not get caught. Maybe then they speculate she died in the woods by exposure or injuries, something to that effect. Come to find out, though, it's not as simple as all of that. The night before the accident, Mora had been having dinner with her dad, Fred. The car was actually his, and he lent it to her so she could get back to the campus in time for a party she was going to. Around 2.30 a.m., coming back from the party, she had crashed her dad's car. She called her dad to tell him what happened. He told her she'd need to report the crash to the DMV, but she could do that the next day and did not worry about it. She did get home that night, and her dad said that she seemed fine. It was the next day that she disappeared. On February 9th, she got a hold of her professors, told them that there was a death in the family, and that she was going to take a week off. She packed up her dorm room, drove to an ATM in her car, and withdrew $280. Then she went to the DMV, and then she went and bought a bunch of alcohol. She then calls her own voicemail at 4.37 p.m. And that is the extent of the evidence as far as her whereabouts prior to the car ending up in the snowbank. In her car, they find directions to a condo complex in Burlington, Vermont. Her phone records also show that she had called one of the owners of the condo. In her dorm room, there was a note left behind for her boyfriend that kind of listed out all of the issues in their relationship. And that's where it ends. There have been a few potential sightings of her in the years since, but she is to this day considered a missing person. Our next case to look at is 19-year-old Tara Calico. On September 20th, 1988, she left her home in Valencia County, New Mexico to go for her daily bike ride. Before she left to go on her ride, she made the comment to her mother in what appeared to be a joking kind of way to come find her if she didn't get back by noon because she had a 12.30 date to play tennis with her boyfriend. Her mom, Patty, did go looking for Tara when noon came and went and there was no sign of her daughter. She went out looking on um, Tara's normal bike route and didn't find any sign of her there either. So that's when she contacts the police. They search, but they find very little. They do find pieces of what they assume were Tara's Walkman and pieces of a cassette tape. They were along the route that she would normally take. The police suspected that maybe Tara herself had broken it as a kind of trail of breadcrumbs. It doesn't end up helping them, though, and nine months after she disappeared, her case goes cold. Authorities are doing the usual routine, questioning parents, looking into her life at home. There is no abuse going on and nothing that would lead them to believe she was escaping from home. Her parents seem truly in distress over the disappearance of their daughter. On June 15, 1989, 
authorities find a Polaroid in a convenience store parking lot 1,500 miles away. In this picture, there is a teenage girl that looks an awful lot like Tara. And then there's also a young boy. They are both lying on sheets and they have their heads on a pillow. They are both tied up with duct tape covering their mouths. Patty was positive that the girl in the picture was Tara because she had a scar in her thigh the same as Tara. The FBI was not convinced, but there were experts at Scotland Yard that took a look at it and they shared the same belief as Tara's mother. Then comes the next twist. The boy in the picture is potentially identified from that picture as Michael Henley. His family says that is him. Problem is, Michael Henley's remains were found in the Zuni Mountains in 1990. The belief is that he died of hypothermia after he wandered away from the campsite his family was staying at. Sheriff Rene Rivera of Valencia County thinks he has an explanation for Tara's disappearance. He said that he received info that Tara was hit by a car while riding her bike and that she was killed. Teenage driver was the one who hit her and out of fear disposed of the body. There were no arrests, though, after this suggestion was made by the sheriff. Tara has never been found, but there is a suspicion that people in the town know who killed her. When one of her friends started looking into it, they found files with suspects' names, but no info in those files. It's possible that there may be some movement in the case, at least there was in 2017. So this is one case that might someday be solved, and I think the family deserves that. Now here is a very eerie one. Frederick Valentini was a pilot doing basic training flight over the Bass Strait between the Australian mainland and Tasmania on October 21st, 1978. This 20-year-old man was an experienced pilot with about 150 hours of flight time under his belt. He's in his Cessna 182L. I know nothing about planes, so if I said that wrong, I apologize. And gone. He just departed for King Island when Frederick radioed the Melbourne Flight Service, reporting that there was an unidentified aircraft tailing him. He describes it as moving at a high speed and that it had four bright landing lights. He then said it passed about a thousand feet above him. He went so far as to kind of narrate the movements for about five minutes. He even suggested that whoever was flying it was just toying with him. He mentioned it was shiny and metallic with a green light. Out of nowhere, Frederick started having engine trouble. The flight service officials asked him to give them a final description of his craft. He is recorded as saying, quote, it isn't an aircraft. Then the transmission was cut off. A metallic scraping sound was the last thing the flight service officials claimed to have heard. They assumed he crashed, but an air and sea search didn't turn up any sign of his plane. The missing persons case was closed, but five years later, an engine cowl flap that matched the plane Frederick was flying washed up on a shore at Flinders Island. In 2014, a UFO action group in Victoria claimed that an unidentified farmer says he saw a 90-foot craft hovering over his farm the same morning Frederick disappeared. This farmer says that Frederick's plane was stuck to the side of the UFO. The identity of the farmer has never been revealed, and there have been no further developments in regards to Frederick's disappearance. Here is a missing person case that is not one person, not even two, but three. It's come to be known as the Springfield Three. 
On June 7, 1992, 19-year-old Susie Streeter, her mom, 47-year-old Cheryl Levitt, and Susie's 18-year-old friend, Stacy McCall, all disappeared from Springfield, Missouri. The day before, Susie and Stacy had been celebrating graduating high school. Those celebrations were the last times anyone saw the two girls or Susie's mom. In 2017, Stacy's mother, Janice McCall, said never in her wildest dreams did she think 25 years would go by and Stacy would still be missing. There is also a documentary on this case um, by True Crime Daily. There have been a couple of events that looked promising, but didn't end up amounting to much. A convicted murderer named Robert Craig Sox said that he was in Springfield the day the women went missing, but there have been no charges against him. That was 1996. In 2002, the police get a call saying there are some men working for a Webster County concrete company that seems suspicious. A search of the site did turn up human remains, but they were too old to belong to the three women. In 2003, authorities found blood at a farm in Cassville, but the lab tests of the blood didn't provide any new hope. Janice McCall is still determined to find her daughter Stacy, even though the Springfield police have given up on the case. In fact, she said this, Until I know 100% that Stacy is deceased, I will never declare her dead. The next missing person is Branson Perry. This 20-year-old disappeared from his father's home in Skidmore, Missouri on April 11, 2001. Branson was cleaning the house with a friend, Jenna Crawford, in preparation for his father returning home from the hospital. Jenna said that Branson went outside and then shouted up to her that he was going to go return some jumper cables to the shed. There were two men working there at the time. Neither they or Jenna saw what happened. Branson just vanished. Branson's case has had its ups and downs over the years, from leads that went nowhere to bizarre developments. Branson had an earlier episode while working with a traveling petting zoo. Um, it turns out he was suffering from tachycardia, and this racing heart condition led him to have to live at home with his dad. And also, four days before he vanished, Branson had been at a neighbor's house. This guy's name was Jason Bierman. Supposedly, Jason gave Branson some unknown drug. According to true crime expert Diane Fanning, this drug caused Branson to get naked, dance around, and then shave off his pubic hair. He also might have had some kind of sexual encounter with Jason. So once Branson was sober, he was embarrassed, humiliated about what had happened, and he told his father. Branson's dad, needless to say, was furious with Jason, but even though he was enraged, he did not confront Jason. And it doesn't appear that Jason was ever considered, at least officially, a suspect in Branson's disappearance. The day that he had been cleaning with Jenna and disappeared, no one initially realized that he was missing. Jenna just thought he'd gone somewhere, so she went home. The next day, Branson's grandmother went by and the house was empty. She assumes Branson's gone somewhere and she just missed him. She goes the next day. Still no Branson. They filed the missing persons report on April 15th, five days later. 2003, a minister and a Boy Scout leader named Jack Wayne Rogers was arrested for some unrelated charges. Apparently, he tried to perform a sex reassignment surgery on a trans woman and was unable to stop the bleeding. He was charged with first-degree assault and 
practicing medicine without a license. When police searched his belongings, they found evidence of more disturbing crimes on his computer. They found child pornography and online posts that detailed rape, torture, and the murder of multiple men. He even went so far as to describe how he cannibalized some of the men's genitalia. One post described the killing of a blonde hitchhiker who he buried in the Ozarks. The description of the hitchhiker sounded a lot like Branson. Rogers claimed the posts were just fictional writing, and since there was no evidence, they had to clear Roger, um, sorry, they had to clear Rogers for Branson's case. Even his mother, Rebecca, Branson's mother, didn't believe it was Rogers. Authorities believe Branson was murdered, but they don't know by who. Branson is still a missing person. And here's another eerie one, though this one is kind of solved, at least partially. This one is the missing Jameson family. Before this family went missing, Bobby Dale Jameson told his pastor that their house was haunted. It was just a few days later that Bobby, his wife Sherilyn, and six-year-old Madison vanished from their Ofala, Oklahoma house. On October 8, 2009, the family was reported as missing. The police found their pickup truck a few days later, but rather than help solve the mystery, it made it worse. It was located in Latimer County, one hour away. Inside were the family IDs, wallets, phones, their pet dog, and $32,000 in cash. Both Bobby and Sherilyn were on disability, and the only explanation the cops seemed to be able to come up with is it had to be drug money, either buying or selling. That leads them to believe the family had been killed in a drug deal gone bad. Then again... Why would they have brought their little girl and their dog along to a drug deal? From what they found in the truck, it didn't appear the Jamesons thought that they were going to be gone for very long. The case, though, goes cold until November 16th of 2013. Three miles from where the truck was found, some hunters find the skeletal remains of two adults and one child. Forensic experts are sure that this is the Jameson family, but... No cause of death is determined. So when this happens, the police get going again to try and solve the case. They remember how Bobby had told the pastor that two to four ghosts were living on the roof and haunting their house. Then police find some kind of creepy footage of the house on the night they disappeared. This video shows Bobby and Sherilyn packing up the belongings and putting them in the truck. Sherilyn's mom says that her daughter and her husband were involved with a cult. And police discovered that Sherilyn had recently bought a satanic Bible. Also interesting is that Bobby had filed a protective order against his own father because he was, quote, a very dangerous man who thinks he is above the law. So that led some to believe that Bobby's father had murdered the family. However, the most popular theory is that Bobby killed his wife and daughter and then killed himself. This was because there was an 11-page super angry letter written to Bobby by Sherilyn prior to their disappearance. So there are the theories. No definitive answer. How frustrating. And let's end it there with Ghosts on the Roof, Angry Fathers, and Satanic Cults. Hang tight for the final crumb. Please subscribe. I'd appreciate it. Follow me on Instagram at CrimeBiscuit. Find me on Facebook at Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast, or send me an email at acrimebiscuit 
at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. Activate the damn geolocate on your phone and let trusted loved ones track you. So what if they catch you at the dirty bookstore or at a UFO convention? It's better to have to give an embarrassing excuse than to be a statistic. And if you have angry ghosts on your roof, move. Thanks for joining me. Bye.